This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So Jordan is standing there, staring at Bigfoot. <laughs> when it hits him. Okay, not actually Bigfoot. He's, he's in the checkout line, waiting to get to the register. When he sees some Jack Link's jerky on the shelf. I went into a, the, the local convenience store here, and they had this new product on the shelf, and it was uh, smoked bacon jerky, you know, like Jack Link's stuff. It gets his attention. It's bacon to go, and who doesn't love a little bacon to go? So he decides he's going to buy it. I think it was like six bucks a bag or something like that. And so I was like, oh, I'll try this. You know, it's, it's bacon. Got to try this. So I bought it, you know, took it out to the truck, ate it, delicious. And uh, then the business mind clicked in. Jordan's business brain kicks on a lot. And when it does, it comes up with some pretty good stuff. Like how to take bacon, which normally sells at the store for like $5 a pound, and charge $50 a pound for it. And I looked at it and it was um, like 1.5 ounces. And so basically it translated to like $50 a pound for, wow. for bacon is what they were charging. And people were buying it, obviously, or wouldn't have that position right up there by the register. You know, it's a hot product that's moving. This meant a lot to Jordan, and not because he's some kind of bacon fanboy. It's because he's a pork farmer. And I'm not talking like a homestead hobby pork farmer. We manage about 500 acres of ground. Um, we've been in this for 13 years, since 2009. And we produce um, grass-fed beef, uh, forest and pasture-raised pork, pastured poultry. Yeah, this is, we are, uh, you know, in the small percentage of farmers who actually earn their full-time income from farming. Jordan is not exaggerating when he says he's in a small percentage of farmers who actually make their entire living from farming. An article written last year on the USDA website stated that 96% of farm households get some income from off-farm sources, and on average, that off-farm income was 82% of their total income. So when we say a small number of farmers actually make their full-time living farming, we're talking 4%. And yet Jordan and his wife 
figured out how to do this, starting a regenerative, multi-species, pasture-based farm from scratch. Both of them coming out of military jobs. I know you're dying to know how they did it. If you would like to start a farm business, a part-time side hustle, something on the weekends, or go big like Jordan and his wife decided to do when they came out of the military, you're going to love this episode of Homesteady. The world that we live in is a crazy place. This is a pandemic. The toilet paper tussle. Inflation hitting a new... They're protesting. But you and me, we can make a difference. By just starting a garden, harvesting rainwater, raising some meat chickens with a couple of friends. All these little steps, bit by bit, it makes life better for you, me, and our kids. So if you've wanted to start homesteading, or maybe just grow your homestead a little bit bigger this year, well, you found the right podcast. Cozy up, it's time for another episode of Homesteady. Hello, Homesteady Pioneers. If you're watching live tonight, welcome. Just a quick reminder before we dive into Jordan's story. Every podcast that you watch on YouTube or listen to on iTunes is actually the edited version of an interview that's done live with Homesteady Pioneers. That interview is twice as long. It can be found in the Homesteady Pioneer library. If you're a pioneer, click the link that just popped up on the screen or you'll find a link in the podcast description that'll take you to the pioneer version. You can enjoy the full length one. If you're not a pioneer, you'll find a link in the description of this video or maybe it just popped up on your screen. That'll take you over to our website where you can become a pioneer for just five bucks a month and get instant access to this episode and all our other ones waiting for you in the Pioneer Library. So Jordan, welcome to Homesteady. We're really excited to have you. Tell us a little bit about your homestead, your farm, what you're doing, and then how, how that even happened in the first place. Sure. So my uh, wife, Laura, and myself own Jano Green Farm. Uh, we're based in Edinburgh, Virginia. Um, we're probably on the, the bigger side of farms, uh, you know, probably for your, for your audience, but even in the regenerative um, you know, say multi-species space. Um, we manage about 500 acres of ground. And this is our full-time business for both sure, us so and fine. several full-time staff that that work with us. Um, we've been in this for 13 years since 2009, and we produce um, grass-fed beef, uh, forest and pasture-raised pork, pastured poultry, and then uh, do turkey as well here on the farm. We also carry products from other producers around us that. Um, you know, kind of complement our line of products and you know, help their farms out um, uh, as well. Everybody, Jordan here with Farm Builder. So we got a special treat for you today. We are going to give you a tour of our gestating and farrowing farm called Woods Chapel. A lot of people who run a farm full time, a lot of the ones I've met have inherited that farm, grew up on that farm. But not so for Jordan and his wife. They're both first-generation farmers. We, I did not grow up on a farm per se. Um, both of us are first-generation uh, farmers, but we bit, both did grow up on you know, what now would be called homesteads. Um, you know, at, at the time in the the '90s, that really was the the cool thing. Um, <laughs> you know, both of us were big homeschool families that had a lot of kids, and so inevitably had egg laying chickens and um, a few pigs, not very many from, from what I can remember. 
uh, growing up myself, but, you know, heard of dairy goats, kind of that stuff. But you know, again, it was something where, you know, my dad is a landscaper by trade. So that is his full-time job. All the kids worked in the landscaping business as well. And the, uh, the farm was kind of the thing that helped put food on the table. And I, I'm beginning to suspect it was also something to keep all the kids busy. So you have <laughs> plenty of plenty of chores for the kids to do to keep them out of your hair. <laughs> yeah, that I, I literally was having a discussion with my wife tonight. The kid, the girls were out uh, feeding some baby lambs, and I said, "That's why we do this. Keeps them busy." <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of us get our first jobs sometime in high school. Maybe we're a cashier or a clerk. Maybe we work for a landscaping company. Jordan's first non-family job took him right into agriculture. So my family moved to Virginia in the 90s, uh, late 90s, and that was when I got my first um, uh, non-family job, is what I call it. It was working on a local farm uh, about five, ten miles down the road that they had horses. They also had two commodity poultry houses. And that was a, you know, a unique experience to work inside a commodity system first and see what uh, kind of the inside of the, the commodity poultry industry looks like. And it's not very pleasant, um, you know, not, not to go too deep into the, the chicken manure on that, but <laughs> yeah, just imagine a barn that's, you know, 60 feet wide and uh, maybe 300 feet long that's got 20 or 30,000 chickens in it. Wow. Um, and they're in there for nine months at a time because this was a, a laying barn. What was your job there in the big chicken houses? Oh, I, I was just the uh, the guy who went in the barn and like picked up the dead birds and you know made sure the eggs were rolling back in the boxes. You know, I was basically the entry level uh, you know peon. <laughs> so not, nothing nothing spectacular. I was 15, 15 years old, you know, making five bucks an hour. Although Jordan didn't love working at the commodity chicken house, he did enjoy working in agriculture. And he wound up landing an internship at a very special farm. From there, I knew I enjoyed farming and just kind of working with equipment. But I knew I didn't want to necessarily do that kind of farming. And kind of coinciding with all this was um, reading some of Joel's early books, going down and, and seeing Polyface Farm. And ended up getting an apprenticeship there in 2001 um, when I was 19 years old. Um, so you got to go down there, spend about 13 months um, learning these, uh, you know, pasture-based production models at a more, uh, you know, scaled operation. You know, more than just the 50 chickens in the backyard. This was, you know, 10,000 chickens in the in the backyard and. Um, you do lots of pig and lots of beef. Working in a commercial chicken house, internship at Polyface, you know what comes next, right? Jordan decides to start his own farm? Not yet. So what I did for a few years after Polyface is I helped other people start their farms. Uh, people who had a lot more money than me got to go to several farms on the East Coast and actually live there for you know eight weeks or six months and just help them get their farm going. Uh, it was very similar to what you see now of people who had run the, the corporate uh, hamster wheel for, you know, 10, 20 years and had a collection of children under 12 years old that they were, you know, they were done with, um, like the one guy helped start their farm. He was a, a medical device salesman, you know, and they, they make pretty good money, but he wanted to have this farm to have with kids. And, but he didn't know a lick about farming at all. Um, and so it worked out well for both of us that he had the money to kind of fund starting the farm. I had 
more experience than he had in doing it. <laughs> so uh, you know, I was able to get one step ahead. And yeah, I was able to get him started with a small poultry operation, some egg layers, some cows. Um, that's kind of what I helped people do for a, a few years. What a good way to like almost practice starting your own, but without actually it being the one that had to work, right? Like such it's always a good great to practice with other people's money. Yeah. <laughs> if you get that opportunity, man. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, and I was, uh, I was blown away with one consulting uh, call that I had. It was a guy who's now um, a senator from that state. Um, no at the time, he was the mayor of a major city in that state. And so, you know, went out there, stayed at the, the mayor's mansion, which was awesome. It was the first time I've ever been to a restaurant where there was no prices on the menu. You know, it was just like, <laughs> order what you want. It's like, sweet. Uh, you know, and I'm like 21, 22 years old. Um, and we go out and look at his farm, which is, you know, just awesome. And he was talking about uh, buying the neighbor's farm, um, that he was interested in it. And the auction had been the previous week and it went for like five or $6 million. And he wow. was like, that was just a little bit more than I wanted to pay for it. And, you know, I'm here like, wow, <laughs> just blown away by someone casually talking about the difference between five and $6 million. You know, <laughs> I just wasn't feeling it that day. Experience at the commercial chicken house, apprenticeship at Polyface, and then actually being the foreman, the guy in charge of growing other people's farms. Surely this was the right time for Jordan to make the leap and start his own farm, right? Eh, wrong again. Yeah, they definitely got me with the posters when I was a teenager. Uh, go to the Marine Corps. You know, wanted to definitely uh, try that out. And so I ended up having the opportunity to go to the Marine Corps after Polyface. So I was actually an old man going into uh, the military. I was 22, 23. <laughs> and uh, I was basically the grandpa of the platoon going through boot camp. So <laughs> Uh, I mean, did that for five years. You know, it was an awesome experience. Um, you know, no regrets doing that. Um, you know, got to see a lot of cool places around the world, do do cool things. But it wasn't what I really wanted to do for 20 years. And so that this is kind of the 2008 time frame that, um, you know, I'd gotten married while I was in. So my wife, Laura, who also comes from that kind of homestead, farmstead family, you know, homeschool, home birth, home everything background um we started having conversations about all right do we want to jump out and go back and just start this farm idea and so it was you know about 12 or 18 months of developing the ideas of what we wanted to do and uh, it was always our intention to jump into it full time out the gate that you know, we didn't want to have off farm jobs and then try to do the farm the farm was going to be our uh, our full-time thing so get out of the military yeah, summer of 2009. Um, you know, I remember one of my uh, you know superior uh, enlisted uh, gunnery sergeants. Um, you know, he asked me, you know, because he knew I was up for reenlistment, and I was like, "No, I'm getting out. I'm going to go home and start a farm." And he's like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard." <laughs> <laughs> the world was in the middle of a recession. The housing market had collapsed. Didn't seem to be the best time to be starting a brand new business. We were young enough and uh, you know stupid enough and had uh, <laughs> enough sweat equity to throw into the equation that that we jumped off the cliff. And, that is a recipe uh, for success farming right there. Young enough, stupid enough, I like it. Enough sweat <laughs> equity. Yeah, that's how we got here too. <laughs> so obviously, I mean, you're coming out of the Marine Corps now. We're fast forwarding a little bit. You and your wife are coming out of the Marine Corps, and you probably didn't come out of the Marine Corps with five or six million dollars to buy a farm. 
Uh, unfortunately, no. Right. <laughs> so how did you wind up actually being able to purchase a farm? Did you guys jump right into owning your own farm? How did that work? We did not buy land. We leased land for the first 11 years that we had this business. Um, it's only in the last two years that we started buying property. So we found a, a 200 acre farm um, that was owned by you know a couple in their 40s, early 50s. Um, that was looking for some, you know, young people to come and do something. Um, so we had uh, land, you know, we, we had an angle on that. And in all of these areas, you're looking for what's your unfair advantage. Um, you know, anytime you're starting a business, you always have to look at what is your unfair advantage above your competition, basically. So for us, we found land. It was cheap for us to start operating on. Um, the second thing is capital. Like it does take money to start businesses. You know, fortunately we had a family member that, um, you know, believed in us and what we were doing and ended up fronting us about a hundred grand in capital to get started with, which we then repaid over the next, uh, the next nine years. Um, so we had, you know, land, we had capital to operate with. And the other thing you have to address is, um, market or opportunity. You know, those, those kind of go hand in hand, but, where is the opportunity in the market for a product that you can produce? And oftentimes you're not going to know necessarily what that product is until you actually engage the marketplace itself. I love how Jordan puts this engaging the marketplace. He's a military man. And when he uses that word engage, I think of that idea of engaging an opponent, engaging an enemy. We can come up with a plan, how we're going to outsmart our opponent, how we're going to defeat them. But so much changes the minute we actually engage our opponent, or in this circumstance, the marketplace. We can dream all day of how our farmer's market stand is going to look and how much we're going to ask for farm fresh eggs. But until we make our first sale, we just don't have enough information to truly build a successful farm business. This makes me think of a story that you're probably familiar with, uh, an entrepreneur who approached his market, you might say stubbornly set in his ways, and despite multiple times this entrepreneur being asked to serve his marketplace what was lacking, what was needed, he continued to ignore it. Bum, 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 ba-dum, ba-dum. A duck walked up to a lemonade stand and he said to the man running the stand, okay. The duck song. Hold on now. Hear me out. You know the duck song. The duck walks up to the lemonade stand and he asks for grapes. Our entrepreneur doesn't have any grapes. So the duck, until the very next day, when he asks, and of course, our entrepreneur, no, he doesn't have any grapes. He still doesn't have any grapes. And this happens day after day. He sets up his little stand, up comes a potential customer asking for something he doesn't have, and the customer waddles away. When we're starting our farm businesses, when we're starting homestead business, some of us can get so stuck in an ideal of what we want to produce and how we want to produce it that we don't really listen to our customers and we watch them waddle away. This happened to Jordan in the beginning when they first started their farm business. Do you think this store has any but it wasn't lemonade he was trying to sell. It was pastured poultry. So we thought that, you know, Virginia is the pastured poultry capital of, uh, of the world. At least at that time was. Now it's California and Georgia. But 
um, you know, pasture poultry was where it was at. And so, uh, yeah, this definitely shows our, uh, you know, even with the experiences that we had had previously, um, something that just went right over our head was, well, if Virginia is the pasture poultry capital of the country and you want to do pasture poultry, that means you're probably entering a saturated market <laughs> or, or a market that's already well occupied by competition. But we didn't know that till we till we started engaging the market, and then you know quickly learned, hey, chickens is not it, it can be a piece of what we do, but it's not going to be the the main enchilada. Um, at that time, um, you know, my alma mater, Polyface, they had just picked up Chipotle, and they needed more production on pigs, so they said, hey, if you want to grow, yeah, you know, I think it was like a hundred or two hundred pigs for us next year, we'll we'll buy them from you. So that immediately gave us a little bit of, of market there and an opportunity to, to pursue. Um, but that wasn't the, the, the big opportunity came once we started producing pigs, we realized there was a shortage of piglets uh, in the, you know, in the local area. Um, you know, Polyface was buying a lot. So we were kind of left with the scraps and, you know, like going to buy piglets at different places and like literally catching piglets underneath junk cars in a junkyard and dragging them out and putting them in our trailer. <laughs> um, so pretty quickly we realized we needed to start a farrowing operation to birth all of our own pigs. And that's, you know, it was two, three years into operating the farm that, that the real golden opportunity for us opened up and that was to supply piglets. There was no competition and just a wide open market was producing piglets that, you know, there's all, all these other farms starting and competing in this direct to retail space, but there's no one there to give to supply them with their piglets. And uh, that ended up becoming our, our centerpiece enterprise was a farrowing operation and selling piglets to other farms. But that was an opportunity that we never would have known doing a feasibility study or kind of the academic business review before we actually got into the weeds and started operating the business. So that, that's something I, I really like to encourage people with is, you know, it, it's worth writing a business plan and doing kind of those numbers and projections and stuff, but also realize that once your boots are on the ground, uh, you know, that the kind of the, the maximum, the, the axiom from the, the military side is um, no battle plan survives first contact. I you love know, that you, saying. I love that saying. You know, you, you think it's going to go this way, but you hit the, um, you know, in, in warfare, it would be the enemy. You hit the enemy's front and they have a vote in what happens too. And you have to react to that. Um, same in business, you hit the market, which, you know, can be combative towards you. And you, you have to look for where's the, the opportunity that we can maneuver around and find, um, you'll find the, the gap in the line that we can get through and access this market. And for us, it turned out to be piglets. The stuffed animals that are here in the store are, are stuffed pigs. So. <laughs> <laughs> now let's shift a little bit here. You guys are full-time farmers. What is your operation nowadays actually look like? How do you pay the bills with all these animals on your property? I mean, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, man. Welcome back, everybody. Another day in the life here at JNL Green Farm, and it is April 11th today. We are getting into the uh, busy time of our year. Everything is moving out. A lot of pigs are being moved. Chickens are going back out on pasture here in the next few days. So we are moving out of our ouch out of our winter slump into a little bit more of our summer schedule. 
that's what we'll be showing you guys. Yeah, so and you know, the, the, the first years were definitely tough. And, you know, our, our first year, I think we paid ourselves about 10 grand for the, the year. Um, you know, we're rationing my quarters to go buy a, a can of Dr. Pepper at the local convenience store. You know, that was like <laughs> my, uh, my reward at the end of a, a slaving day. <laughs> uh, but that was kind of what it took for us to get the, the farm off the ground was keeping that capital and that equity cycling inside, inside of the business instead of pulling it off. Um, for a personal income to, to kind of telescope out to the, the, the widest aperture on the lens, let's say, um, no matter what you're doing as a business, you are in the process of cycling capital through a business operation and taking a profit margin on the capital and then accelerating that cycle as many times as you can. So, uh, you know, a good way to look at it is um, if you have what's called a cow-calf herd, you know, where you have cows that are birthing calves, you're growing those calves up for 30 months and then harvesting them and selling steak. Your capital has, let's say, a 32 to 34-month cycle that you're, you're, you're taking your equity, your capital, you know, as the owner, this, this is very capitalistic. So, <laughs> um, you know, we, we're going to talk about the money. Um, you're taking that capital, you're putting it at risk in that mama cow in the calf for 36 months, and then you're hoping to realize a profit at the end of that. So it's a very long cycle with a cow-calf herd all the way through to finish. So fundamentally, what we are looking at is once we have arrived at a profitable model, whether it's with beef, pork, poultry, produce, or whatever, what can we do to tighten that cycle up so that we now are rotating that capital more and more frequently, you know, ideally many times inside the same year, and we are collecting that profit margin off of, off of that initial capital. So it's, a, you know, it's assembling these different enterprises together, but always keeping that that core principle at the front of the decision-making process that our capital has to make money going through this business. And if it's not, then we need to stop doing it. So like for our farm, we do, we do not produce any eggs on our farm now. It's a very hard product to uh, make margin on. We have to produce something that is giving a return on the capital that we've engaged into the, into the farm. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be an unprofitable operation for a short period of time. We'll be a charity operation for a, a period of time after that. And then we'll be a bankrupt operation at some point pretty closely in the, the future. The, the life cycle of a failed farm right there. Sure. <laughs> and you know, yeah. it's such good advice, even for people listening who aren't going to do what you do full time. If you're selling eggs on the side of your road in a cooler, but they're losing you money, just raise eggs for your own family if you even want to bother doing that. We've done on our show, we've done economic breakdowns of farm fresh eggs four or five times. And every time <laughs> we have our farm accountant come on and give it the thumbs down every single time, just stop doing it because right. it's a waste of your time. The if worst you thing that you can do, whether you're a homestead or you know a larger farmstead, is that kind of how it works? Is the homestead the, the small version and then farmstead's a little bit bigger? Yeah, I um, like that. That works. Up on the lingo here. Yeah, I okay. like that. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and then even just a startup farm, 
the, the most detrimental thing you can do for your local community of producers is to roll in and undercut on price. Oh, yeah. Like that, that so gets under my skin that, uh, you know, when you see the, the $2 a dozen eggs, you know, on the side of the road, like yeah. they, they roll into the farmer's market. And, and we've literally seen it happen where people will cruise, other vendors will cruise the farmer's market and they'll look at what everybody else's prices are. And then they're going to slide in like a dollar underneath that. Awful. And you, you just want to grab them and say, look, that helps you right now. That yes, that will put some cash into your cash box. But what that is doing, we know you're not profitable doing that. What you're doing is conditioning the public to continue to expect a artificially low price for this product. You know, it it does not cost two dollars an egg or two dollars a dozen to produce eggs. Um, you know, especially if you're doing it on pasture and you know GMO free and all that stuff. It needs to be eight to ten. Yeah. And that's what the public needs to be acclimated to. And, and if they can't afford that, then they can just get some of their own and you know, have a few egg-laying chickens. There's, there's nothing wrong with everybody producing their own food. But until all of us as producers are kind of on the same page that we need to, if we want to have any kind of um, presence in the market with these products and, and respectability in the industry, the first thing that we got to do is start being real honest with each other on how we price things and stop this, this little game of undercutting each other just to get our product somewhere. What advice do you have to somebody who's listening? We do have people live tonight. And then I know in, in the upcoming days and once we release this on YouTube and the podcast, there's going to be so many side hustlers and even, you know, Hey, we're going big or going home, small farmers uh, who listen to this and they agree with you and they think, yes, I want to get paid what I should get paid for my eggs or my chicken or my pigs. I need to, but how? What is the the best advice you can give, you know, parting advice for someone at the end of this interview thinking like, I want to do what Jordan's doing. I want to run a profitable farm. I want to become a full-time farmer. What's the best way to get a customer to finally decide, yeah, it's worth that. It's worth $10 a dozen on eggs. There are several approaches. One, you know, of course, is always continually pressing on the education front of being transparent with the customers and saying, hey, this is what it actually costs now to produce food. And here is why, um, you know, the cost is being hidden when you go to you know, Walmart or, or, or whatever. And, you know, you, you have to be very knowledgeable about the food industry and how prices are pushed around. And, you know, understand that there's a, a fair portion of the population that that just isn't going to resonate with them, which, which is fine. But that doesn't mean they're not going to buy from you. Um, and and it, a story I'd like to share to illustrate this is uh, maybe six, seven years ago, I went into a, the, the local convenience store here and they had this new product on the shelf and it was uh, smoked bacon jerky, you know, like Jack Link's stuff. And um, you know, they had it right up on the register you know, nicely marketed and all that. I think it was like six bucks a bag or something like that. So like, oh, I'll try this. You know, because it's it's bacon. Gotta try this. So I bought it, you know, took it out to the truck, ate it, delicious. And uh, then the business mind clicked in and I looked at it and it was um, like 1.5 ounces. And so basically it translated to like $50 a pound for, wow. for bacon is what they were charging. And people were buying it obviously, or wouldn't have that position right up there by the register you know it's a hot 
product that's moving. And the, the lesson from that is there is a, a price point for everything that the market will tolerate. You just have to find what configuration of your product matches the market's ability to bear the price. I'm going to repeat that because it's such a good point. You have to find, this is your job as the homestead entrepreneur, what configuration of your product matches the market's ability to bear the price. So what does that mean? Well, basically, Jordan's saying is you might have to change how you present your product, the way it looks and the way it smells, the way it's served to make the amount of money that it actually costs for you not only to produce it, but to then go and pay yourself for that time for your investment. Let's think about it like with an organic apple. An organic apple is a lot of work to produce. It takes a lot of time, effort. You're going to have a lot of waste if you're doing things organically. At the end of the day, let's imagine you have about 10 organic apples in a bag. It's about three pounds of apples. Walmart sells them for $2 a pound. So let's say you're gonna to try to match Walmart's prices for an organic apple. So two, four, six, you ask $6 for your bag of organic apples. You're gonna just scrape by trying to match Walmart's prices. Well, now Jordan said we have to figure out what configuration of our product the market will accept at the true cost what it actually is costing us to produce this product. So let's say we take that same bag of apples and instead of trying to match Walmart's $6 a pound, we slice those apples, a little bit of salt, a lot of sugar, some cinnamon, maybe a little nutmeg, secret spice. We lay that on top of a pie crust and then put that in the oven, pull it out, steaming hot, smelling amazing, that farm fresh apple pie. We go and put that on the shelf in our little farm stand and people drive down the country road, get out of the car and walk through our farm stand. They take pictures in front of our goats, do a selfie with our cow in the background. And as they're getting ready to head home where they're going to have lunch with their family, they smell the delicious smell of fresh baked apple pie. And they walk up and they don't even look at the price tag. They just say, I want to take that pie home. I'm willing to pay $25, $30, for basically the same apples with a few extra ingredients and a little bit more time spent on them. We're able to properly pay ourselves, cover the true cost of what that product actually took to produce, and everybody is more than happy. Except for me because now I really want a slice of apple pie and I don't have one. So yeah, didn't work out for me in this, but that's what Jordan's saying. Back when we used to do farmer's markets, um, one of our hottest selling items up for the Saturday morning market we did, it wasn't a steak, it wasn't a pork chop or something like that. It was a sausage, egg and cheese muffin. So when you produce pigs, you have an overage of sausage usually because you get a lot of sausage. Um, we were also doing, we had like 3,000 egg layers at this point. And so we had a lot of these small pullet eggs, which are you know notoriously hard to sell. Um, <laughs> you basically got to give them away. And so the thought hit us one day of, hey, you know, what if we did, you know, a McMuffin kind of thing? And that would allow us to use the sausage 
And it would also allow us to use these peewee eggs because we would just put two on it instead of one. And so we, you know, we fooled around with the idea and we ended up building a whole farmer's market trailer just to do this, this one thing. And you know, essentially we had $2 in cost for the, the sausage, egg and cheese muffin. We used you know, real cheddar cheese, um, you know, English muffins, not something you know, nasty. So it was, it was a nice sandwich. And this would be, um, goodness, like 2012 through 2016 that we were doing this. And at that time, we were selling them for four to four fifty a muffin, and we would sell, you know, a good morning we would sell four hundred of them. Wow! Um, at this one farmers market because it was right next to a college. It was in a college town, right next to the university. You've got all these students that are hungover. You know, <laughs> and it, it's a great hangover cure. You got that sausage smell coming across the parking lot, and you're you know hooking them by the nostrils and bringing them over to your to your uh, tent, and that is a market demographic that would never buy from us otherwise. You know, they're, they're not looking to buy whole chickens or steak. I mean, they live in the dorms. <laughs> they, they've got a meal <laughs> car. They don't, they don't even need to cook for themselves. But they're out cruising the town Saturday morning, you know, still a little buzzed. Hey, nothing like some, some grease and cheese to help you know, knock the, uh, the hangover down. So you know, the, the kind of uh, the principle there is... Um, you may not be able to sell a whole chicken or a dozen eggs or a half pig profitably in your area. That, that's probably going to be fairly likely. There, there might be a small percentage that you're able to sell, but there is a configuration of the product you're producing that does sell at a price point you can be profitable at. You just have to figure out what it is. The obstacle to overcome is that one in your mind of saying, well, I, I only want to sell uh, whole pigs, or I only want to have um, you know, a CSA, where I, you know, I'm just another guy selling tomatoes. Well, yeah. That, yeah, that may not work. If you can change how you configure that product to the market, you you'll, can find that niche that can be very profitable for you. So if you can have the flexibility in your marketing and sales and what you do with your product, you can sell pretty much anything anywhere. So there's your challenge. You can pretty much sell anything anywhere if you just figure out the way the market is ready to accept your product at the price point you need. So what have you been thinking about selling from your homestead? Is it farm fresh eggs? Are you a brave soul who after an untold amount of episodes of hearing me say, don't do it, you're gonna prove me wrong. <laughs> is it alpaca fiber, farm fresh pork, bacon? Maybe do a little bitty brainstorm and try to think of some creative ways that you can sell it and let us know in the comments. What do you wanna sell and how are you gonna get creative with selling it so you can make what you need to from it? If you're watching on YouTube, obviously the comment section is easy. If you are listening on the podcast, I'd love for you to do me a favor. It's been a long time since I've asked for reviews. We have a lot of new listeners. Leave a comment in the review section. Tell us what you've been inspired to produce and leave a review at the same time. It would help our show grow. If you want some help with marketing your products, Jordan and Farm Builder are an awesome resource. If somebody wants to keep following what you're up to, uh, getting advice on you know how to run the farm, what are you guys up to at Farm Builder? Uh, so Farm Builder is kind of an idea came up with maybe five years ago. 
kind of keep it to like a how-to type of channel, how we do things at scale, um, and then use that to, to advertise for the, the events that we do on farm, um, which are, you know, we try to keep to very, um, very technically heavy information, heavy schools on, Hey, look, if this is, this is something you want to do as a business, this is how we do it. And so, you know, half of a school is on the farm, half of it's in the classroom. Um, you know, we've all been to conferences or, or classes that are kind of not done very well. Uh, so we want it to always be the best that was out there and really bring the information, bring the content. You know, it's not cheap to come to one of our schools, but the, the information though is going to be vastly, uh, overwhelming. I, I was actually looking at, uh, your, I was checking out your fair to finish and your marketing school, uh, for someone who's interested, Jordan, let them know there's, there's both, there's the package. What does each of them offer? What can they learn about? Yeah, so we decided to split it up a little bit because some people only want the marketing side, other people just want the production side. Um, so we do a day and a half of just production, um, you know, type of instruction, and then Laura does a day and a half of the marketing side because you know, like we just talked about before, if you can't market the product and sell it, then you're just a glorified uh, pet farm for a while, <laughs> and eating well yourself. Yeah. Um, so the, the two do, do go hand in hand and, um, you know, it's been certainly one, you know, an element we haven't talked about much is, uh, you know, the value of having a spouse who is on board with what you're doing, who brings a lot of experience to the, to the table uh, themselves on, um, you know, balancing out your deficiencies. And so, yeah. you know, Laura is our marketing director and, you know, she moves, um, an insane amount of product through this farm and, you know, distributes nationwide. And, um, you know, it's been cool to see her grow in that role, uh, you know, and for me to grow in the production role as we've worked together over the last 13 years doing this, but it, it's certainly a, a team effort um, for, to, you know, kind of get us to where we've gotten to. You could do a whole episode on that topic right there. That's such a good point. But uh, Jordan, <laughs> thanks so much, man. This was so much good information. Also, I got to just plug away for you. Um, I've been watching some of your infrastructure videos on your channel. You got that awesome feeder, uh, good waterers for pigs. Uh, so we'll have links in the description of this video uh, to Jordan's schools. We'll have links uh, to your different infrastructure videos, your builds there and everything else going on at Farm Builder. If you want to do what Jordan did, if you want to go big, start farming full-time, check out what he has to offer at Farm Builder and check out his schools. You won't regret it. If you are a homesteader who wants to dip your toe in the water, maybe you don't want to go big yet, maybe you're not looking to do this full-time, but you want to sell something, we've started a new program over at thisishomesteady.com. It's got a really big future, but for now, I'll just tell you it's called the Pioneer Pro program. And what it is, is you get access to the Pioneer Library, invited to all the interviews we have and all the bonus content Pioneers get. It's also bundled with the Make Money Homesteading course. This is a course that I designed to help you take the little baby steps it takes to go from wanting to make money from your homestead to actually having a product and the infrastructure in place to sell that product. You're not, this isn't designed to take you to full-time farmer status, but it is designed to help you actually start making money from your homestead. It's a one month long course, but you can take it at your own pace. 
And right now it's bundled with the Pioneer program to make this Pioneer Pro program, which like I said, you'll hear more about this probably in the fall. I have a lot of big plans for it, but you can get into this program now. It's a hundred bucks for both a year long Pioneer subscription and access to the Make Money Homesteading course. Together, it's the Pioneer Pro program. A lot of big things planned for it in the future. Get in now. I'd love to see you over at the website. This is homesteady.com. Join in the Pioneers and the homesteaders making some money. There's a big old link in the description of this video that will get you right over to the website to become a pro pioneer. I hope you all enjoyed this episode with Jordan as much as I enjoyed making it. I hope you all can sell a little something from your homesteads, make a little money to help pay for chicken feed. And until next time, remember, the road is rocky. Make home steady. Make home steady.